Church, as we continue to worship, I'm going to invite you to take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to Paul's epistle to the church at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians, specifically chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. As you're turning there in your copy of God's Word, you are aware that this Friday will be Veterans Day for our country. It's the time that we as a country united in respect and gratitude for the service of faithful men and women who defended the very freedoms that we richly enjoy, even the freedom of worship that we are inhabiting this very morning here. So I think it's appropriate for us uh, to say thank you. And so to all of our veterans that are here worshiping with us, would you do us the honor of standing now so that we can acknowledge you and say thank you to all of our veterans. We continue to worship this morning. We have the opportunity for us to turn our attention to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 11. And I'm reminded of the content of Paul, subject matter here of a billboard that I saw about 11 years ago. If you're driving to Memphis from Birmingham on what is now I-22, I guess at that time, 11 years ago, maybe it wasn't I-22, but maybe still quarter X and old 78. But you're going into Memphis from Birmingham, and right when you would get on the outskirts of, of Memphis, you would have seen on May, 11 years ago, this billboard. Judgment Day, May 21st, 2011, the Bible, let me stamped, the Bible guarantees it. This billboard was one of 1,200 billboards that were purchased by Family Radio, which I do want to distinguish to make sure that that's not focused on the family. That's not American Family Radio. It's a different organization called Family Radio that was founded by a gentleman by the name of Harold Camping. And Harold Camping convinced hundreds of followers to sell their possessions and to pull their resources for the purchasing of 1,200 uh, billboards just like that across Memphis and across the rest of the nation. Actually, they had purchased another 800 billboards like that that were across the world internationally. May the 11th, 2011 came and it went. And based upon Harold's camping's uh, prediction, uh, it did not come to fruition. So he recalculated, and his own calculation and his words were a calculation based upon the floods and some other genealogies within the Bible and subtraction and addition thereof, he said. And so he recalculated and got the prediction of Jesus coming in October instead of May. And again, that did not come to pass. And as you can imagine, hundreds of his followers, hundreds of the adherents of his teaching, they were disillusioned and, to say the least, destitute by that. So these kinds of teachings, they are not just hypothetical. They, they're not just theoretical, but that was actually livelihoods for people. This is not the first time that this has happened. If you're a student of history, you know that there have been uh, eschatological, that's just the teaching of the end times, eschatological excitement, eschatological predictions. Go back to 1844, there was a teacher by the name of William Miller, and he had followers called the Millerites. They went on a mountain on March the 21st of 1844 with the certain expectation that Jesus on that day was coming back. Again, they sold possessions and were left disillusioned 
and destitute. And William Miller, much like Harold Camping, said, I got the calculation wrong. And then he continued to predict different dates in the future. Some of you are aware of some of the craze that happened around the year 2000 and the Y2K movement and hysteria. People were predicting that Jesus was going to come back in various voices and various writings. Uh, Some of you remember maybe a book. It was a little book that sold 300,000 copies. That's a lot of copies of a book that was entitled 88 Reasons That Jesus Was Going to Come Back in 1988. And you couldn't get your money back for that book in 1989. You know, if you were one of the 300,000 people that bought that. And, and, you know, the question is, is what do we say to these types of specific predictions of the actual timing of Jesus? One of the things that we discover in the Bible is the Bible is certain on the return of Jesus, but does not give the specificity of when he is going to return. So the specificity we do not have, but the certainty we do have. Listen to Paul's own words, writing to the Christians in Thessalonica. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people, or while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman. And they will not escape. But you are not in darkness. Brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you're all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, children of the light, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love And for a helmet, the hope of salvation, for God has not destined us for wrath. This is children of the light, children of God, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we're awake or asleep, we might live with him. Verse 11, why have I given you these 10 verses? Encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Two truths I want you to take home this morning. Two truths from God's word in these 11 verses. The first is be assured of Christ's return. Christian, be assured of Christ's return. As you know, what comes before chapter 5 is the section that I preached on last week, chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, where Paul is asked the question by the Thessalonians, what happens to our loved ones When they die, are they safe? Are they secure? And Paul answers that question by talking about the certainty of Jesus' return and the souls of those that are in heaven with him will accompany him here on earth and their bodies will be raised and reunited to their souls. And so Jesus is uh, coming back and Paul talks about that as a certain encouragement for us. You can imagine someone hearing that teaching, sitting in the back of the room that raises his hand and says, I need to know a little bit more about this. I need to know the when. I need to know when exactly this is going to happen. And Paul, to that hypothetical question, says, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware. You're fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a what? A thief in the night. I think Paul is echoing Jesus' words when he says, you don't have anything else, you don't have need for anything else to be written to you because Jesus has the last word on this. In Matthew chapter 24, 
We read concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. I love the way one commentator talking about this very verse talks about uh, our need not to have to know the details. Listen to what this commentator says. Being spiritually prepared for the return of Christ does not involve date setting, clock watching, or sign seeking. God has chosen not to reveal the specific time of end time events so that all believers, all believers, you and me, us, all believers will live in constant anticipation of his return. So certainty we have, specificity we do not have. But even if we did have the specificity, what do you think we would do with it? I mean, if God chose to reveal to us in the apocalypse of John, in in the revelation that we have, what if he chose to give us actually in the word May 22nd, 32-22, 12-18, Central Time, my son is coming back. How would we, as finite, sinful humans, what would we do with that information? You know what would we do? It would draw us to complacency, would it not? It would draw others to doubt, being so far away. Even if we had the information, or on the flip side, think about it this way, what if God chose to break into the canvas of the the very canopy of earth and to have this alert to all of us? You have one hour for the earth to hear. It's a countdown, and in the sky we would see 59, and then 58, and then 57, one hour, each of the minutes being counted off until his son would return. What do we do in that situation? The opposite of complacency It would draw us to probably chaos, widespread panic. So God, in his wisdom, I don't know exactly why he withholds it, but in his wisdom that is good for us, he does withhold it. We don't have the specificity. We do have the certainty. This we know about it. He will come, and he will come like a thief. Thief doesn't schedule. You don't have to have been broken into or robbed to understand that there's a, there's a shock and there's a surprise to this. There's a difference in the way that believers and unbelievers receive this image of a thief. We know that this is going to happen as believers who trust in the word of God. Paul begins to contrast the children of darkness to the children of light and the children of darkness, they're going to receive the second coming of Jesus in a way that is different than we will. We don't know the specificity, but we have a certainty he's coming. Unbelievers are going through their life, and as Paul talks about it, they go through their life thinking there's peace and security all around them. And then there will be sudden destruction that comes upon them. Notice the vivid imagery that Paul uses. This labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape the sudden true judgment of the Lord. All of this imagery reminds us of the certainty the inevitable nature of the return of Jesus. There is nothing you can do, nor I can do, or an unbeliever can do to hold back this reality. the, The return of Jesus will be like the sunrise. You can't rush it. You can't slow it down. And when Jesus comes again, we don't know the day, nor do we know the time, but he will flood this world with the sunlight of his presence and the glory of his grandeur, and that light will be too bright. 
For the children of darkness, for the children who choose to live in darkness, choose to reject the gift of God's Son as their Savior and as their Lord. And so for a believer, his return is reassuring for an unbeliever. This is a sobering reality here, what Paul is talking about. And Paul is contrasting how we should hear this for those that are in Christ and those that are outside of Christ. They're different reactions to the same anticipated event. And this happens in life. Yesterday, you were watching football games, and maybe you were watching the the end of the World Series yesterday, and you could have a divided family with different allegiances. You have a text thread with friends that have different allegiances to the teams that you're watching, and the same game can be watched. And depending upon the outcome, you have some people that are just overwhelmed with frustration that their team lost, and you have another set of people that are just glee with joy that their team won in the same family. Same text thread, friends, co-workers, all watching the same game with the same score with diametrically opposed reactions to the outcome. And so there will be, not a football game that I'm talking about here, not a baseball game that I'm talking about here, but this cataclysmic event that will shape this world forever to come in the new heaven and the new earth, the certainty of Jesus' return and how we react to his return has everything to do with what we do with the gift of Jesus as our Savior right now. It's where our allegiances lie, isn't it? The same event with diametrically opposed reactions depending upon our allegiances. If we are a follower of Jesus, we look forward with great anticipation of his return because he is going to right every wrong and he is going to wipe away every tear from our eyes and death will be no more. But for the unbeliever, for the unbeliever, this is a glorious period. His judgment is enacted, and his glory and grandeur will singe their unbelief. So don't wait. I don't know why God tarries the return of his son. I don't know why when there's, there is evil around us and hopelessness that seems to be inescapable for so many people, chaos and, and difficulty, and, and we as Christians would say, Maranatha, come Lord Jesus, and God in his wisdom, uh, wisdom, he tarries his return. I don't know all the reasons why, but this I know, that every day that God in his infinite wisdom tarries the return of his son as an opportunity that you and I, that we have to be bright light for Jesus because we actually have friends who are children of darkness we actually have family members who do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord there are billions of people on this planet that if his return was today they do not they do not know him as Lord and Savior so we pray for the lost We pray that we'll be faithful witnesses to family members and to co-workers. We pray that the glory of God would penetrate the hardness of the hearts of those that we love because we want to be with them for an eternity in heaven. So we send missionaries to unreach and unevangelize 
people groups across this nation. We do this as a church along with millions of Christians across this world. Why? Because this is not a science fiction story. This is not the script of some CGI movie superheroes down the road. This is the certainty of the destination of this very world. So we pray for family members. We pray for friends. We want to be found faithful as witnesses because every day that he gives us is an opportunity to point people to Jesus. He will return. And his return the second time is going to be different than his return the first time. The first time that he came, he came what? He, he came as a newborn peasant in a manger that had to be coddled and cared for. When he comes his second time, he is coming as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. When he came the first time, he, he was wearing a crown of thorns. When he comes back again, he's wearing a crown of glory. The first time he came and he died in a sinner's stead, in a sinner's place. The second time he comes, he comes to separate the children of light from the children of darkness. He comes and as the Savior. He comes as the holy, perfect judge who met out justice in his perfect way. He comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. So, Christian, be assured of Christ's return. So, unbeliever, be assured of Christ's return. And what do we do as we wait? Well, Paul was saying, verses 6 through 11, be alert until he returns. Paul does something in this passage here which is interesting. He transitions from our standing before God to the way that we live in light of him. So he's moving us to make lifestyle choices. He gives us this image in verses 6 through 11 to stay awake, be sober. Don't get confused here. In chapter 4, he uses the same imagery of sleep to talk about death. He changes the, the image of sleep to, to sort of spiritual sleepwalking. He is giving us this image. Don't, don't sleepwalk through your spiritual life. Be alert. Stay awake is what Paul is saying in this passage here. I think it's important for you to understand Paul in 1 Thessalonians, this is one of his earliest writings. So some of the uh, concepts that he gives us in 1 Thessalonians are sort of in an incubational state. And they are more fully developed in, in later more mature writings. They're all under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But you notice in Romans that Paul's going to pick up this very imagery that he uses, and he's going to help us even see more clearly what he's talking about here in 1 Thessalonians 5. Just listen to what Paul says in Romans 13. Besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from sleep, that spiritual stupor and, and, and just sleepwalking here, for salvation is nearer to us than when we first believe. The night is far gone, the day is at hand, so then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. What Paul is saying is, hey, Christian, be alert. Be awake. Don't coast through life. Don't sleepwalk 
through the disciplines that God has called us to in the days that he grants us. I don't know how many of you as parents have had this experience with your children, but there have been periods of time with all three of my boys that in the middle of the night they will wake us up and they, they, they are sound asleep, but they're conscious. They're sound asleep, but they're walking. They're sound asleep, but they've gotten up out of the bed and they're doing something else. And you almost have to wake them as they're standing to get them back to the bed. There have been times with one of our boys that the alarm will go out because he has slept walk out of the house, out the front door. <laughs> That'll wake you up in the morning. Sometimes you have to set an alarm to keep your kids in the house more so than to keep people outside from coming inside the house. And Paul's using this imagery here. Don't sleepwalk your way through your Mondays and your Tuesdays and your Wednesdays here. No, verse 8, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and a helmet for the hope of salvation here. Paul's drawing upon some imagery, just what I told you before, that, that same imagery of the armor of God. Where's that going to show up again? It's going to show up in Ephesians chapter 6, where he gives out all these descriptions of the armor of God in further detail than what he gives us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 8. Here, he just gives us two items to think about. He tells us to put on, put on, clothe yourself in the breastplate of faith and love and put on the helmet for the hope and salvation. Now, what are these two items protecting? What does the breastplate protect? And what does the helmet protect? You know what it protects? It protects your head and it protects your heart. And this helps us. Where does the enemy want to trip you up? Where does the enemy want to attack you? Where does the enemy want to deceive you? We live in this world, and it is God's created world, no doubt, but there is an enemy that lurks. Call him the deceiver. Call him Satan. Call him who he is. He's the devil himself, and he has as a target your head, your thoughts, your heart, your affections. And he is not neutral. So he wants, he wants to slip in, just as he does in the Garden of Eden, and he wants us to think did God really say that? And he wants to whisper temptation to us, to confuse us and deceive us. So we're conformed to the way this world thinks instead of being transformed by the renewing of our mind through the word of God. He wants to whisper in the midst of doubt, in the midst of difficulty, in the midst of death, God doesn't. He doesn't really love you. How is that rod and staff comforting you as you actually walk through the valley of the shadow of death? That's what he whispers to you because what does he want to do? He wants to pull your affections from a wholehearted pursuit of God and he wants to distract you at an affectional level he wants to say to you in the midst of your sin, your sin defines you, your past defines you, your mistake defines you. There's no way that God could actually love you if you actually thought that and you did that and you said that and you were that. And he wants to confine us to our past. And so what do we do in that moment? We clothe ourselves through the word of God, we clothe ourselves in prayer. We clothe ourselves in worship. We clothe ourselves in devotion to God. That Satan doesn't get the last word. 
And so when we clothe ourselves in Christ, we receive the helmet of the hope of salvation. I love that word. I I mean, just circle it, put an asterisk by it, put a star by it. Hope, 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 hope. We live in a hope deficit world. We live in a hopeless world at times. We live in a world where people are desiring and they're longing for hope, but they don't even know exactly what they're hoping in. We use that word as a flimsy word. It's not sturdy. In our world, hope is just wishful thinking. You got a friend who says, I hope I get that job. I'm not sure. I hope I did. Interview went okay. I hope I get it. I hope I get the promotion. I hope the surgery goes well. I hope, I hope, I hope. Flimsy, not sturdy, not what the Bible's talking about. When the Bible talks about hope, hope stands up straight. Hope is strong. Hope works out. Hope is not based upon you. Hope is not based upon me. Hope is based upon Christ. It is a confident expectation. And so when Satan comes and he comes to deceive in our mind and he comes to pull our affections in our heart, we stand in the hope of Christ Jesus and we say, in Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, and my song. This cornerstone, the solid rock, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, what fears are stilled when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Here in the love of Christ I stand. So we, Christian, you, follower of Jesus, we believe what God says by faith. And we do what God calls us to do out of love. And we trust what God promises to us because he is our hope. And when we believe God by faith, and when we respond to him out of love, the byproduct, what flows from us, is a life filled with hope. God has given you the opportunity As long as he tarries the return of his son, you, my friend, are a hope peddler. You get to peddle true hope. You get to. In your workplace, in your neighborhood, in your home, in the midst of a world that is at times so hopeless, so dark, Through the power of Christ in you, that hope exudes from you. Not because of you, but because of him that lives in you. So be reminded, Christian, do we know the specificity of when he is coming back? And the answer is no, we certainly don't. But this we perfectly know. We don't know specifically when he's coming back, but we have perfect certainty that he is coming back. So you and I, we live between two extremes or two postures. We live ever waiting and ever ready. Ever waiting and ever ready. We should live as if he would appear from the clouds of heaven this afternoon. But we also should be willing to wait eagerly with great anticipation of his return that could be years or decades or even centuries away. And as we live, we live lives filled with faith, hope, and love until he returns.
May he find you and me. May he find us faithful. Amen.